The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is a guy who I've known for some time, Aaron Soderstrom, who is a deep quant, as I mentioned myself, and has some really interesting insights on where we are in the cycle. We're going to be talking about the six stages of grief, also known as the six stages of the business cycle with Aaron. But Aaron, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? As you get into involved in markets, the quant side, and what are you doing currently? Yeah, I appreciate it, Michael. So as Michael said, Aaron Soderstrom, I am a quant self-proclaimed nerd. I currently run and operate a asset management firm, Omega Squared Capital Management. We manage roughly about 300 million. So we're a small boutique, but we're also not small, if that makes sense. So our overall process is data-driven, of course, and we use a lot of what I call quantonomics or just data-driven economics models to kind of gauge where we're at throughout the business cycle. And as uh, Michael mentioned, what we primarily focus on is identifying where or what stage we are currently in inside the business cycle using our six-stage model. And those different stages really help kind of tell us what we should be doing and where we should be managing and putting different clients' assets. I've been a manager over at a hedge fund. I've been a quant shop over at, or I'd say a asset manager over at Wells Fargo's private bank. I've done, been in the industry, you know, 20 plus years and I've known Michael, I don't know, roughly maybe about five years now running around that time frame, And we've had plenty of discussions and we talk about the market behind the scenes. So it's good to finally be on one of your Twitter spaces and hopefully share some of our insights uh, and where we're at. Yeah, so no, the, that's kind of the brief overall idea as far as who we are. So I think probably next would be jumping in and just sharing what our thoughts are about those stages and our model and, and go from there. Yeah, no, I want to, I always like to try to set sort of an equal footing for everybody that's listening. So the term business cycle is thrown out a lot, right? But I don't, I don't know if people really fully understand what a business cycle is. Just let's go very basic initially here. What is a business cycle? That's actually, it's not a basic answer. So the way that we look at business cycle or the business cycle is it's really kind of a combination of multiple cycles put together. Uh, because if you look at just, for example, a lot of people say like the economic growth rate is the business cycle. And we don't necessarily believe that. We think that you can have a slowdown in the economy without actually dipping into a recession. 
depending on where other cycles are at. So we take kind of a multi-cycle approach. So we consider the business cycle like a combination of, for example, the labor market cycle or a cycle on interest rates or the cycle on housing, monetary policy cycle, profit cycle, all these different cycles, the credit cycle, all these different cycles combined together to identify the overall business cycle that is that's commonly known. So the easy way of defining a business cycle in our minds would be a period of the well, I'd say the one-on-one version, right? It's a period of expansion followed by a period of contraction. And it's basically cycling over a long-term secular growth rate. That that would ideally be the business cycle in a very simplistic form. But really, it's not an easy question to answer because there's so much to it. Yeah, and there are leads and lags among the cycles to each other. How do you identify when you're in a cycle which is unlike other cycles? Meaning, yeah, do you see a lot of false signals in the relationships of different parts of the economy to each other, other divergences, or for the most part, you know, are there no real sort of anomalies when it comes to cycles? Yeah, great question. So first, it kind of reminds me of that, that age-old saying that everyone probably is aware of. You know, business cycles, they don't always look exactly the same, right, that throughout time, but they do rhyme. They do have kind of this rhythm. So it's looked at more as a kind of a combination of all the different cycles put together in order to really identify it. So there's always going to be something different. And actually, by the way, that that's in our mind is a key thing to understanding the next cycle. So a great example of that would be like during the tech bubble. During the tech bubble of 2000, the real estate market really didn't react the same way that it would usually do during a normal business cycle. You didn't have a massive slowdown inside the real estate or inside the housing market. And thus it created in our mind a little bit of a bubble, which led to like, the 2008 financial crisis, where the center of that particular business cycle was around housing. And what we're going through now is very different, but it's all precedence on what's different in this cycle compared to what you consider to be a normal business cycle. So we have this model that's basically saying this is our normal cycle. But you always need to identify slightly what's different. And I'd say what's different this cycle would start by the massive amount of quantitative easing and also fiscal stimulus that was in place during the pandemic that basically put this business cycle on steroids. You're seeing a lot more dramatic effects or knockoff effects from having a very dramatic recession. And now the recession in the financial markets doesn't necessarily look like a bad recession. We didn't go through a massive 50% decline like you saw in the financial crisis. But what you did see was a very massive drop in, for example, uh, GDP and a very massive rise in unemployment, unlike what you'd see in past business cycles. So the dramatic effect of the pandemic is essentially speeding up this round of the business cycle, or at least it sped up the expansion phase of the business cycle to where that took place over a period of one or two years, which would normally take uh, on average three to four. And then, uh, of course, like that during the financial crisis of 2008, the expansion period after following lasted roughly around 10 years. So great point is we always want to try to focus on what's different in this particular in in business cycles and try to identify them. And actually, I mean, that's sort of the... um at least from my vantage point, kind of something which is downplayed or at least not focused on as much. 
a lot of people refer to the pure number of dollars that the Fed and the fiscal side pumped into the system. But it was more than that. It was the speed with which it happened, which yeah, wouldn't have been the case. You would not have as much stimulus going to the economy as quickly as we saw had you not had the Internet or just in general kind of other forms of accessing taxpayers by sending them money. Right. So that's where I think this gets to be messy, I would think, from a cycle analysis perspective, because any historical comparisons are not just a function of magnitude, but maybe a speed that was probably on average a lot slower than what's happened in modern times. Right. Yeah. Velocity definitely takes into a very big part into it. But the key point, though, is when you look at all these cycles from a thousand foot view and you can dive into them granularity as well, but they still rhyme. There's still a rhythm and there's still a process. And even with the dramatic effect we saw from the pandemic, those processes and rhythm still flows through. And actually, I think identifying a business cycle and where we're at is fairly simple once you understand what you really should be looking for. And then identifying what's different, I think, is a little bit harder. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. But it's still doable. Okay, so so let's get into into that now. So you've got these six stages. So let's let's lay out what each of the stage is. Let's define them. Let's talk about what stage we're in now. So just kind of you know, take the prof- professorial hat on and kind of teach us in terms of the way that you think about things, and then round that out with where the changes happen because it's more than just the stage; it's the turn. Yeah, yeah. So a brief overview before I dive into each one would be uh, what stage we're at now. We call it the imminent recession stage, and the imminent recession stage is basically the, what we consider to be kind of like the point of no return. So once a particular signals trigger, we know that a recession is going to happen. So we basically remove the probability or odds of a soft landing or no landing scenario. And then the next stage following that is obviously a recession. And that's really where we start our cycle. So we call that stage one is a recession. And then we move over to what we call stage two, which is recovery. Uh, recovery is usually, you know, that scary bottom point in the economy where you want to start dipping your toes back into the market. Stage three would be the early expansion phase. And then stage four is mid-expansion. Stage five is late expansion. And then finally, the end of our cycle process is stage six, which is the imminent recession. Imminent recession, that's where we're at now. So diving a little bit more deep into them, yeah, each one of them has very different characteristics. So, for example, an imminent recession stage like where we're at now, some of the, the common themes you would see would be, for example, uh, maximum restrictiveness from the monetary policy cycle. And the maximum restrictiveness is essentially where the Fed pauses. I know a lot of people think that's really good. And, and then the market is loving the idea that they're getting close to a pause where maybe possibly two rate hikes out, maybe a little bit more if you follow like the Taylor rule. But the point though that we're trying to get at is just we believe that we're kind of in that phase of where 
monetary policy will reach that maximum restrictiveness. The other common things inside of a imminent recession would be extremely high wage inflation. Now, we consider wage inflation, wage growth, less labor productivity. So it's a little bit of a yeah. our own type of math format, but it usually tops here inside the imminent recession. We've seen that. We've seen the top. We're starting to see wage inflations come down from there. So that, that's a clear sign. But another one would be the labor gap. The labor gap is different from your unemployment number. When we look at the labor gap, we always compare it to the natural rate of unemployment or in room. But the point of the way is unemployment and the labor gap actually looks pretty healthy inside of an imminent recession. It's not one of those indicators that tells you that flashes a warning sign, except for the fact that it's below what we consider to be its natural rate of unemployment and it's negative. And it's so saying it's worded really tight labor market, which usually correlates with higher inflation, by the way. Interest rates, we usually are in more of a yield curve that's inverted and it's bare flattening. And so when you start to see that turn around and steepen and turn into like a rapid bull steepening and uninvert, that would be a signal that we're entering into a recession phase. A couple other ones would be like a credit cycle inside the imminent recession is usually plugged with higher or raising credit spreads, even though that's kind of been a little bit mute this cycle. And then also, lending standards are increasingly tight and you start to see little cracks and cracks might be little in some business cycles, but this one's been pretty pronounced, right? The banking crisis that we've seen. So the overall credit cycle itself is also suggesting that we're in in that imminent recession. So all those indicators put together is it's very clear to us that the imminent recession is here. And then what we do from there is we have to also check off the box that there's no soft landing. And in order to do that, there's a couple of rules. First, when you go through like a, a interest rate rate cycle process, in order to have a soft landing, we believe that first lending standards really can't be tight to the point where they're too tight, I would say. And then finally, the yield curve itself needs to not be inverted or stay uninverted in order to have more of a soft landing, no landing situation. So if you go back through history, for example, and you look like in 1994, when we had our last soft landing, the key characteristics there would be lending standards were not that tight. And then also the yield curve itself never inverted. And when we look at the yield curve, we're talking about their standard 10 less two spread. And so those combinations this time around doesn't pass mustard. So we know that the imminent recession is hit and we know what follows. And what follows is that that recessionary period. The big question is when. And there's always, of course, those lags and different variables that, that change that around. And this particular cycle, it's kind of interesting. The, the stages from early expansion to mid-expansion to late expansion, even recovery, took place really quickly. And again, that was because we believe that the velocity of money supply just being entered in the market through QE and fiscal stimulus sped up that process. And now the imminent recession phase going into a recession is kind of slow. And we think there's also a lot of liquidity and things that need to be pulled out of the market before that that just causes a recession. So what we're seeing, for example, some of our short leading indicators some of the ones that you guys are probably familiar with, PMI on manufacturing or PMI on new orders has showed that we should be entering a recession months ago, but we haven't yet. And again, we think there's a lot of knockoff effects that need to take place before that recession is going to occur. 
But the point that we're, that the critical point is the end of recession checklist, sort of say, has taken place. And so the odds of a recession in our modeling is extremely high that it's going, that it's going to happen. So we definitely do not believe in the soft landing, no landing scenario. But you said correctly, the timing is the tricky part. So obviously when you say imminent, you know, a lot of people say or think that means tomorrow. Like what, what time frame from like, at what point is it not imminent? At what point is it, is the model kind of changing the probabilities and saying, you know what, maybe that was a false signal, maybe dynamics have changed. Yeah, so from there, at least in our modeling, I can't say it won't happen, but I can say at least in our modeling, it's never happened to where once an imminent recession is flagged, that a recession doesn't follow. Again, that's also plain since 2020 because we, we created this particular model during post-financial crisis before pandemic. So there's obviously possibilities of different errors inside of our model. But for what we look at as far as the lags go, we look at, you look like a typical growth rate indicator set. So you'd have your long leading indicators, your short leading indicators, and then your coincidence indicator. And we're seeing is look at our long leading indicators, for example, yield curves, one of them. Those are all marked off that are imminent recessions coming. And that includes like the housing market, mortgage rates, might supply different long leading I'll check off that imminent recessions. When you start to look at what signs or what indicators would suggest that a recession is here, you there's kind of like a, a bridge point between the between the imminent recession stage and a recession. And those indicators would be things like a short leading indicators which is your PMIs, your new orders in manufacturing. Those ones, it's kind of a mix where we're seeing. So I'm actually just pulling them open right now just to go over them. Okay, so so like business capital or capital spending hasn't really slowed. Capital goods spending hasn't really slowed. But the other short leaning indicators like manufacturing new orders on PMI and durable good consumptions and even the stock market is all given us the warning signs, we're getting close to that recession. But again, it's they've triggered a while ago. So the next phase after the short leading indicators has, it would be the coincidence indicator. And you know this, but maybe some of your listeners don't. You never wait for the coincidence indicators to throw before the recession occurs. Because if you wait for them, it's going to be a little bit too late, at least from an, too late from an asset management perspective, right? So, and those are more of the confirming indicators. And that would be like real personal income, industrial production, total non-farm payrolls, employment level or unemployment, real retail sales, real personal consumption. And I always find it funny, by the way, right before a recession occurs, you always get this. I can go back to 2007. I can go back to 2000. I can go back to even prior, the 1990 recession. But you always get where the talking heads, CNBC, everyone is saying, Hey, the economy's fine. Look at your consumers. Look at unemployment. Look at personal income and industrial production. All those look fine. Well, the fact is those won't turn until you're, it's way too late and you're already in that recession. So if you're waiting for that to occur, it, it's just not going to work out. <laughs> that being said, that, that's really the ones that we have to watch. So I think the linchpin right now, especially for this particular business cycle, because the Federal Reserve is so focused on controlling wage inflation right now and getting unemployment a little bit higher than what it would like, uh, getting that labor gap normalized, that employment would be that kind of final pin to drop or that final 
push to say that, yes, we're in a recession, but you don't necessarily want to wait for that from a portfolio management perspective because it's just going to be too late by the time that actually rolls over. So you have to kind of follow more of the leading indicators and trust the fact that, uh, yes, there is a lag between the two. And yes, it's been a very long lag this particular business cycle, but you don't want to really just wait for that coincidence to fall. So make it really tricky when you see the rally in the market and you see the markets go up 10, 15% prior to it, climbing that wall of worry, right? For the false hope that there's a soft landing scenario. So you you have to make that decision if you want to try to participate in that particular rally or just stay defensive and avoid that particular rally. And that's up to you and your own risk tolerances. But the overall point that we're saying is that it's weak. The equity market is built up on not as foundation and a macro foundation at all. And so any rally in the market right now would be one that I would not be participating in, except for the fact that I'd be maybe taking profits when I can find them from that. So that hopefully clarifies. Yeah, no, although I think it's interesting to sort of say like the market, because I always go back to which market. I mean, I, I'd argue that there's some parts of the market that are discounting, you know, kind of an imminent recession type of dynamic most notably, you know, small caps and behavior of retailers and anything that's consumer sensitive. But, you know, to your point, it doesn't look like it just looking at the headline averages. And we know a large part of that is because of this AI, you know, narrative and FOMO trading. I wonder if you think that, you know, this either delays things, it, it keeps the animal spirits going, it changes some of the data, or if this is just going to be one of those things, just like every other narrative that changes with price. Yeah, it possibly could. There's always, because that's the unknown, right? And that's the problem with what we do is you have to be able to survive that unknown, that lag period without, you know, making too many people mad in your decisions before the, what we know the known will take place for the recession. And by the way, great point. Yeah, when I say market, I generally just mean yes. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. But yeah, there's tons of different markets, especially like, for example, what you mentioned, the smalls and the smalls of the definitely or Russell, you know, whatever you want to look at has lagged the overall market. And then the Magnificent Seven theory, which held true, except for I think the last couple of rallies was a little more broad. But from, from a business cycle timing standpoint, we're not really changing our outlook yet. We haven't extended it. So our estimation, what these indicators would be during the start of a recession. And roughly where we're putting our mark would be roughly July, August is still looking to be more of the start of the recession. But again, that's a very, it can, it can vary. So we're not on the bank camp, but we want the funny part is you wait for the actual recession to occur. I think it's be a little bit late. So we're, we should start seeing the weakness lead through the equity markets as some of these indicators become more apparent. I think in this case, 
the equity market really going to react heavily to the labor market. So I'd say the key thing the whole this particular business cycle is going to be kind of a linchpin on the labor market. So I would try to be in front of that instead of behind that. And we're already starting to see crack in the labor market now. So yeah, be ready for it. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Aaron here on Twitter. And if you want to come up and ask questions, don't hesitate to click on that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live. Okay, so so you've got the framework. Things can always change. I always go back to conditions, not calls. Let's talk about asset allocation in this kind of mindset and framework. I mean, the traditional answer to recessions is go long duration treasuries, right? Play off of kind of disinflation, deflationary types of themes. It's debatable as to whether that would work from a longer term recession standpoint, because if it's stagflation, that's a whole different dynamic. But how do you think about asset allocation weightings depending upon the stage that you're in? Yeah, so that there's another piece to what we do to determine the actual asset allocation. And that comes into a little bit more statistics and a little bit more machine learning. But to give you kind of the basis of it is we look at what we call macro factors. And these macro factors are more short-term indicators, or we have it set at least to be short-term indicators that you can actually explain market returns across a number of different asset classes with a really high R squared. So so for example, BlackRock did a study on this, on these macro factors, and they could explain up to 90% of price variance by following these specific macro factors. And also but what we did, we, we took these factors and we actually separated them to where they give us a particular environment. And in that particular environment would at that point in time give us a really decent idea as far as what your expected return would be. And that's how we make those asset class or that that investment decisions as far as where and what we should be invested in. But to precedent that macro factors and the factors we look at are extremely cyclical. And they follow and they fall into each one of these different stages very well. So what we're seeing this time around is a little bit different. And the difference would be if we follow, we'll start by saying what the four main factors are. The four main factors are economic growth, credit risk factor, inflation expectations, and real rates. If you follow just those four, you can explain a good chunk of market returns. But what we're seeing right now is growth, for example, hasn't, it's slowed and it's definitely trending below trend, but it's not contracting. And in that scenario, equities still have a decent positive expected return. And then we look at credit and credit is saying that, you know, it's increasing. Credit spreads are are expanding, which is usually a negative to the market. But it's not happening with a lot of velocity that you'd usually see during the heart of a recession. And furthermore, it's also not as high as what you'd expect. And it's slightly trending up or down. It's more sideways. So both growth and credit has been more sideways since January. And those scenarios were it would also give you kind of a more positive expected return. And then finally, inflation expectations has been topping out a little bit. It's still above two, depending on the metrics you use. We use an aggregate of a couple of them. But until it actually falls below two, we believe it's also pretty decent for equity markets. 
And then finally, real rates need to, when the recession actually begins, need to drop. So the point I'm getting at is that we know, what do we know? We know that we're in this imminent recession. And usually inside of this imminent recession, you'll see something very different. You'd see economic growth going down, credit going up, which would be credit risk increasing. You'd see inflation expectations start to drop. And then you also see real rates also start to drop. And in that scenario, once you run the models there, the equity allocation would be very defensive. And that would also, by the way, be the duration trade. Duration is a great point. So when you're looking at the actual recession, the modeling for what we see is if, let's say, for example, economic growth is trending down, credit spreads are going up, and then real rates are going down. That's what we usually expect, right? But in this scenario, inflation expectations is still anchored above 2%. And if you run our modeling around that scenario where inflation expectations is above 2%, treasury and duration actually has a very, it's more of a flat sideways movement than necessarily a big rally risk on trade for long duration. So inflation expectations might be one of those lagging factors that, that usually doesn't lag to drop below that 2% expectations or below that Fed fund target. And if it does, if it drops below that 2% target, that's when duration trades look really good. So right now, and, and our point is that duration is reaching that point where it can get into a very large rally, but it's going to need inflation expectations to, to turn around and fall. So our portfolio, we, we have allocated towards duration because we're anticipating that. We're anticipating that inflation expectations to drop below once we actually get in that more disinflationary recession environment. And that would then at that point in time make that treasury trade very attractive. But a couple other factors have to happen too. Economic growth needs to slow down more instead of being below, but still above trend or I'm sorry, low, below trend, but also still positive. And then also credit risk really needs to have that, that spike of worry or that, that fear, that window of credit just shutting. So those are some of the factors that were that needs to happen before we go full risk off and full recessionary model. But we also know you based off the stages, based off of the imminent recession stage, that the odds are very high that will all take place. So we're watching the odds and then we're also watching those particular factors to really give us an idea as far as what and what we should be invested in. Yeah, good question. So the market, yeah, so it's a discounting mechanism, very true, but it's also a discounting mechanism of what the kind of the popular theory is out there. And in our mind, and this has happened before, for example, 2007 reminds me a lot of this, where the market will kind of hold on to hope that, you know, your consumer spending is still strong or unemployment is still low. And they'll hold on to that hope that the soft landing will still occur. And it's just, you know, I can't blame it. The market's always right, right? It's a discounting mechanism. But what I don't think that the general population really understand or even care to know is those things that they're holding on to, those hopes that, you know, that the soft landing is occurring is all, it rhymes with the overall business cycle. So hoping that the coincidence indicators are going to hold through this is, I think, fool's hope. And that's, and you always see this like in 2007, you had quite a big rally before we really entered into the scary part of the recession. And that was that proverbial climbing the wall of worry, right? Yeah, we're worried about a recession, but 
it hasn't happened yet. So let's keep pushing up PE, right? Let's keep expanding. But it's just multiple expansion. You won't see that in earnings. Earnings really has been, at least in the last quarter, has been flat. But if you look at a year-over-year basis, it's in negative growth. So earnings growth, earnings per shares is decreasing. And what you're seeing right now is primarily just a multiple expansion. And depending on what market you're looking at it, of course, you'll see it's blaringly obvious to us, at least, that this is just climbing a wall of worry, FOMO type trade. Um, and the overall market, yes, in the short term, kind of does its own thing at times. But in the long term, it's really based off those uh, profits of companies, right? And that earnings recession is correlated with an economic recession in big ways. So hopefully that answers your question there that, you know, this is, this could happen that the climbing of the wall worry could take place uh, as those coincidence indicators continue to lag. But once, once it's obvious to everyone or once it's obvious to the market, that's, I think, when you're going to start seeing a much bigger drawdown in the equity space and uh, frankly, bigger than October and in our minds. But, you know, it's hard to say if this is going to, if this is going to be one of those massive credit events that pushes the market down a massive, in a massive way. So I think at least bare minimum will test October lows and push lower a little bit. So it'll be fun to watch when it happens. The problem is people, when the moment you say that, people say you're a perma bear. And I've been on, on the other edge of this repeatedly because I've said that myself. I said that I think we're still in a bear market and I think it's very possible you make lower lows, you break the October lows, which I think would happen probably with a credit event as a catalyst. Who, What that is, who the hell knows except with hindsight, right? But I don't think that's as far-fetched as people think. I, I You have central banks everywhere still trying to fight inflation. I just put a piece out that should be on Seeking Alpha shortly just talking about the UK and it's like, it's true. I mean, you talk about having to really get ahead of inflation, they're in deep shit. And if something like that happens here in the US, old bets are often where stocks go, you know, from a bullish perspective. Right, well, yeah, and you know what? In an imminent recession, I think I do put on my permanent bear cap, right? And I'll definitely sound like that when we're in this particular stage. And that stage can last a while too. But I would also say, Again, the, the current factors, the current like setup for our own growth with growth going sideways, credit kind of being muted, inflation expectations still above that 2% mark. It's equity markets have a good reason to go up right now. And this environment actually gives a high volatility, but still positive expected returns for many risk assets. So it's the catch is when and where do you find when that actually turns and we enter that recession phase? So that's the scary part. And in that cap, yeah, I guess I, I am wearing my permanent bear hat, but that'll change. You know, when the recovery turns around and everyone is uh, just out of the market in straight fear, I'll put on my Contra hat and be, you know, buying up everything as you guys are selling it. So that's fine by me. Okay, so let's start by the easy one, by looking at the yield curve. So the yield curve's highly inverted. And then we're also seeing things like uh, the... Two year less the federal fund rate is also starting to invert or inverted. And so where we're at is we're in this bear steepening or bear flattening, sorry, bears flattening. When we go into a situation, and this is what we expect, would be eventually going into something called a beer bull steepening. Now, bull steepening is basically where the federal funds rate or the Federal Reserve drops rates rapidly. 
Um, and that's when the recession is actually occurring. So that would be that recession signal or one of them, I would say. So where we're at now is I think the inversion is going to continue. And I think it might continue further than what people realize because, again, we're in this high inflation scenario. And usually when there's high inflation, you can go back and look like in the 70s and you'll see really deep inversions. So it could invert possibly for a while now or then be inverted for a little bit longer. Um, as you're and even look at this last week, we're still seeing massive inversions now. And it, the next stage or the next process is looking for more of that bull steepening. And the key there would be the Federal Reserve cutting rates. That's actually, I know that people, you know, think that cutting rates is like the big bull market case. Well, it is, but that's only once they've cut rates enough to actually change that transmission mechanism of the Federal Reserve or their impacts of the policy changes. So the first initial point of causing this bull steepening, so it's basically where the yield curve would be inverted to maybe flat and normal and the Federal Reserve still cutting rates, that's really going to be the heart of the recession. And it's not really going to change us to a recovery until we start seeing a more steep yield curve and still in that bull steepening phase and the Federal Reserve becomes extremely accommodative or even reaching max accommodation. So the yield curve itself, it still needs to be steepening. So hopefully that gives you an idea of the yield curve. Your other question would be on tips. And for tips, how, let me just load it into my model real quick. It just takes a second. For tips, I don't necessarily think that is going to be the best choice given the current environment, just in general with inflation. So if inflation drops below inflation expectations, below trend, your tips should have a pretty, yeah, the expected return on tips, I think. You know, it, not bad. If ironically, if inflation expectations fall below two percent, then I think possibly tips might be a decent strategy for it. But it's not one that I really love or dive into. I'm, I like the duration trade a lot better for that. So I would precedent starting by saying that you know, as far as tips go, I'm not probably the right person to talk to on it. But loading it into our model, inflation expectations falling might be a good sign. To actually get into tips, but I'll precedent by saying that I'm probably not the right person to answer that particular question. And then finally, your last question, which would be how long does the imminent recession stage last? Well, it could last, we've seen it last anywhere from a, a few, not a few, probably on average around six months, but then we've seen it be pretty extended. So for example, in the financial crisis, imminent recession stage Road or roughly started as a late 2006s and went through all 2007. So it can last a good solid year. By the way, we've been about a year into our imminent recession phase from our modeling. So I think we are, if anything, approaching the end of it because we've been in so long, but it's hard to say. There's, it's timing, timing the lags from the transmission effect from monetary policy that when it actually causes a recession. I think is probably one of the hardest things you can do in economics, economics, anyways, in statistical modeling. Those lags and those variables are, are just almost impossible really to get right. So I wouldn't put a lot of deep expectation that we are really at the end of that imminent recession and the next phase is a recession. That's where I think we are. That's my hunch. But those variables and lags can def definitely differ and this can, this could last a little bit longer. 
than what's expected. So first, as far as software goes, as Michael said, I'm a quant, right? So we focus primarily just literally on code. So the two primary languages that quants use are going to be Python and R. So depending on what your level of research or how deep you're going to get, those are the two that you want to go to. They have plenty of packages, plenty of libraries that can do a lot of the work for you. And it's a lot, at least the heavy lifting. But the I don't know of any type of software, nor would I recommend any type of stock screening services or economic services, just because the whole point of doing in-depth quantitative research is having the availability to to go in and play with the numbers and switch numbers around and add your own modeling to it. So yeah, I would start with both Python and R. Those are my two go-to ones. So Aaron, for, uh, for those that want to get more familiar with you or kind of curious about what you do beyond what they've heard, how do people find you to reach out? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, Aaron Soderstrom. I'm on Twitter, at Aaron Soderstrom. Our company website, it's Omega Squared Capital Management, which is omegasquaredwealth.com or omegasquaredcapital.com. Yeah, reach out to me, send me an email, call me, whatever you want to do. I'm a pretty friendly guy. I'm not really, you know, the the social media influencer type, but at the same time, I definitely enjoy talking markets and the economy. So I would say don't hesitate to actually reach out and send me a message. Please wrap the Twitter face up. Thank you as always to those that keep joining these efforts. Make sure you follow Aaron and hopefully I'll see you all next time. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.